he popped up in a few films in the 80s, was heard in a handful of video games in the 90s, returned to film in 2017 in The Boat Builder with Christopher Lloyd, and currently writes news commentary as well as hosts a political show available on YouTube called What the Hell Just Happened. Martin Ganolipur's first feature film role was Howard the Duck, and we are excited to discuss to discuss his time on the production as well as his intriguing career trajectory following the film. Uh, Martin, thank you very much for being here today. You are welcome. A quick correction on the name pronunciation. It's Ganapolar, but Ganapolar. you can call me anything you want. I'm going to go with Ganapolar. Yeah, I've right. already got it. I had it right. Uh, my, real last name, my real last name is Petlansky, so I feel your pain. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for the intro. Nice to meet you guys. You as well. So we're going to just jump right into it. Was acting something you always uh, aspired to do when you were younger or even as you gotten older? Or is this something that just kind of happened? Well, it was something that I did sort of naturally. Both my parents are actors and uh, as well as having day jobs, as most actors do. So I grew up in a house where, you know, they were doing plays or they were doing play readings or what have you. My dad actually was a, a screen actor, fairly uh, worked quite a bit. So it was something that I felt comfortable with, but I didn't pursue it as any kind of a career. Um, my, my Uncle Perry, who was from New York, was also an actor in the 50s, and then he became a unit production manager and, and an AD for Kenneth Utt. I don't know if you know who that guy was, but they worked uh, on a lot of movies like The French Connection and mm those kinds of movies so i grew up so sort of, i'm sorry so he was involved with that like uh, isn't the french connection where they shot the car chase like for real like practically on the on the streets and not they didn't really like some of the cars that they're almost hitting and driving by were not a part of the production yeah actually um my uncle was filmmaking totally my uncle was the unit production manager for those sequences and it was you know billy friedkin directing it who was full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes, we're gonna get the shot. And my uncle tried to lock, lock down traffic, but it's New York City, it's like these people are like, yeah, fuck you, I'm driving through. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, it was it was rough and ready filmmaking, guerrilla filmmaking, like you said, but um, yeah, pretty exciting stuff. So he did that um, and I grew up in that. I wanted to be an academician. I, I studied in college, I studied anthropology and got my degree in that but i had always done acting ever since i was a kid and it wasn't until i decided i wasn't going to pursue like anthropology as a career that i uh decided to go to acting school and and give that a shot so that's kind of how i came into it awesome and what led to the again in the role in howard the duck well of course this was a very you know coveted role um first trucker. Uh, many people competed for that. No, I mean, basically, once I got an agent, they were sending me on auditions, I, I had a type. And I had done my first, the first paid gig I ever got was like a Stroh's beer commercial. So I've sort of already had this trucker look thing, you know, and agent called me, I did an audition, as did does, I think, almost every actor in San Francisco audition for that among other, you know every film in san francisco every actor auditions for it because you know you're we're not in la where you're getting three auditions a day i mean you show up to audition um yeah. i guess the casting people liked me and i looked like the right type and so it really wasn't a big deal they just said yeah you're cast you got the part and i was thrilled it was great i was I always find that so fascinating that we spend our whole lives uh, at wanting to be an actor and, and, and acting. And then all of a sudden you find out sometimes you just got the right look. Like I'm a model now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's going on here. I'm in the wrong yeah, business. <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, if you fit the, the vision of the director or the producer, it doesn't matter whether you can act or not or whatever it is. I mean, it's helpful if you can. But if you look like the guy they had in their head, you're in. Yeah, they'll yeah. make it work. Now, yeah. according to IMDb, which we know is ironclad. Oh yeah. Hint, hint, uh, Howard the Duck was your first film credit, but uh, you, would you, you like you said, you had actors in your family. Uh, was this your first time on a, a true film, big budget set, or no? 
No, it wasn't my first uh, time on a big budget set. Uh, like most actors, we start as extras or we, we, we get to be second team, you know, stand-ins. And I, I had done that stuff. Um, so I'd been on sets before. This was the first time I had my own trailer, guys. I mean, this was, you know, pretty cool stuff. So my name on the door, you know, I had makeup people. I was like, I felt like a, like an actor. So that was the first time for that experience. But I had been on sets before. And it's important, I think, as a young actor, for you to pay attention or you get these kinds of gigs, hang out with the, with the grips, with the electricians, with the camera crew, find out what filmmaking's about. And the more you know about that shit, the better you are as an actor, because now you know, when, you know, like, what's the frame? How, how is it being lit? What's the action? Where's the, you know, various elements of filmmaking, a lot different than stage. So I'd sort of, you know, hung out, studied it a little, and then Howard the Duck came along and man, we were jazzed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great to say about knowing everything, all of the different aspects, because uh, we were talking to William Clark for Django Unchained, the AD, and he he brought up Leonardo DiCaprio and why he's so good at what he does, because like before that shot where they punch in on him and he has the cigarette uh, and he gives us the camera a smile, breaks the fourth wall. It's like he knew that he needed to have the cigarette held up right here. Like he knew, understood the blocking and what the cinematographer was going for. It really, I mean, yeah, the more you know, the better. I, I, and, uh, uh, even that's a, not, not even a segue. I agree with both of you guys. Uh, you've heard me talk about this before to where I say, uh, being an actor, while I love doing that, it's not enough in, in, the, in the life that we live. You, like you say, if you know how to do, do sound, if you know about writing, it's like you're on a golf course. You're not taking one club. The more clubs you have, the more successful you'll be. You know, right. you learn the lingo. And like I say, so I think that's very good advice. We always try to give advice back to our, our fans and our film students who uh, look up to us uh, for the things that we have to give to them. So thank you for that information. So yeah. question, how long yeah. were you on set for? Because you had this trailer. I know you didn't leave until the last moment. So, I mean, hey. <laughs> well, on, on Howard the Duck, um, I was there for a little over three weeks. Um, oh, wow. it, it was a long shoot. And, you know, so... <sighs> It was it was exciting because this was a George Lucas production. You know, there were going to be midgets in rubber suits. It was a Marvel comic uh, franchise. The first you know, one. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yes, David, and, it was. <laughs> thank you for recognizing that. And uh, yeah, so I mean, we, we were all thinking, oh, when this is a hit, we, you know, we will have an open career path. So it was pretty exciting. Three weeks, three plus weeks. Awesome. Now, is there, when like we read about the movie, you see a lot of commentary videos about it. There's always stories about um, how it was like a troubled production or there's different stories. Did you experience anything like that when during your time there? Well, or like any inclination that it would, that it would be damned? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a funny thing. These these kind of big budget sets, um, there's a lot of support. There isn't. You don't get to you don't get to dissent from the director, writer, producer's viewpoint. Uh, you're shooting scenes. You're there to do a professional job. Um, people are very supportive and high on what's going on. Mm -hmm. That that being said. Um, you know, working with Willard and Gloria, these guys, this was sort of a vanity project for them because I think they had written one of the Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. uh, right? So basically they're like, okay, guys, you can do whatever you want. They were pretty insulated in terms of, you know, is this any good? Um, those of us who were there noticed that there was kind of like, you know, a guy in a rubber suit. I mean, is this really working? Um, you know, is this concept even accessible? Does it, is it funny? Is it dramatic? Is it sci-fi? Is it, what is it? So there was kind of an, uh, an overtone of feeling, uh, you know, as a youngish actor on set, I just, you know, did my job and got all excited and looked at it as a challenge and thought, hey, these guys know what they're doing. I'm just this new newbie, you know, let them have yeah. at it. 
apparently a lot happens in post-production and it's going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I totally get that, that when you're in the, in, like in the thick of a project and it's something that, and like the last guest we talked to said, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. And, <laughs> and it's, um, and then when you're working on something and it, there is kind of like this collective high that everybody gets into and it's it's necessary to get a movie done to, to be on that kind of high that the whole crew like cast and crew gets swept into i don't think movies would get completed if people weren't swept into that energy yeah. um so I, I totally understand i mean I, I i felt amazing about turn that i made in 2004 and it makes me sick to my stomach to watch now and this is a movie that yeah. i was I, at the time was like this is amazing this is the best thing ever and then you know, hindsight is uh, is amazing it's sometimes. It's a revisionist history. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, do, except, do you have a favorite uh, memory from the production? Well, I mean, it was, you know, it was really an amazing experience for me uh, in the sense of, you know, they built this set, this cafe, and they built it on a gimbal so that they could tilt it. And all of the stuff in the set would rush to one wall because when the dark overlord guy was doing his thing, I'd never been on anything like that before. So, uh, and it was also the, the first time, and maybe the only time, I don't remember, that I got called upon to do stunt work. So this was, this is an interesting deal because, you know, I don't know if you guys work with stunt performers a lot or if you have, that kind of experience. But so I come on the set and, and Everett Creech is this old stunt coordinator who's like uh, from Westerns and stuff like that. He comes up and he, you know, throws his arm around me. He's like, kid, we're gonna have you do some, some stunt work here. Are you up for that? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, you don't say no. You're like, yeah, give it to me. I want stunt work. And um, so they started to outfit me for these stunts that I was gonna have to do. And as I'm doing that, um, he throws me in with the stunt crew, right? So all these old grizzled stunt performers and coordinators and stuff like that. And while you're waiting with these guys, they're like, hey, you want to play liar's poker? And I was like, sure, what's that? And they're like, oh, great. You have any single dollar bills on you? I was like, sure, I got a few in my pocket here. So they, they're teaching me how to play liar's poker. And I, and I keep losing. I'm like, what? how the fuck? Why am I losing dollar after dollar to these stunt guys? And it it turns out it's kind of a, a thing that they do with, with newbies. They bring dollars that already have a lot of winning numbers. So they uh. know they they have stacked the odds and they're just waiting for some chump like me to come along <laughs> and to take me for every single dollar bill I have. That's really a, a great memory for me was was being initiated by these guys at the end of it uh, at the end of doing the scene the scene work they said hey congratulations uh you did good and bad guys always get work i was like oh man that's fantastic so yeah. that was kind of a thing that 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 stood out for me um and just you know working on that set with these really amazing actors um, watching all the special effects stuff go down and jumping over counters and as you guys know if you've seen the movie I actually took a pie in the face from the duck now if you're doing comedy and you haven't taken a pie in the face you really haven't you haven't been right there. yeah right yeah yeah you that's know? so yeah. that's great that was one. that was a memory and then of course because it's film once you take the pie in the face, the makeup guys for the next week have to apply the the pie to your face so that you match every day. Yes. It's a, see, it's the little things that no, the people that have not had any experience in making a movie, they will never appreciate. They're like your blush yeah. is good, but you can't get your pie right. You're never going to make it in this industry. It's like, <laughs> well, the fact you think it's all like, 
you think it's all happening real time. Like, oh, we got the pie in the face. They wiped it off, seen over. Like, they're not considering the team of makeup artists that are that are mashing the pie on a daily basis. L- let me ask you this, because we asked a few of our guests this here. With all of the recycling of the old ideas and intellectual properties, do you think Howard the Duck should get a remake treatment? And if so, what would you do different if there was a remake to it? You know that my honest answer is no. I don't think they should remake Howard the Duck. There you go. Yeah, I hate, yeah. I hate remakes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, it's just like why reinvent the square wheel? It didn't work. There's a reason it didn't work. Um, and I think we've moved along technologically where you could make that film, but I, I don't really see the impetus. You know, so no. Sorry, guys. Nope, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I think I'd rather see Gizmo Duck first before I see another Howard. <laughs> uh, I, I agree that I mean it's and as as much hate and flack as the original gets, it has lived on now to become something that's cherished by people oh, who yeah. grew up with it, and then they're showing it to their kids and they're appreciating mm-hmm. it for what it is. And there are bad movies out there, sure, but this one at least it entertains you and you can tell that there's some heart in it. I call it a, a time capsule film. If you shot off a time capsule, you'd have to put Howard the Duck in there. Yeah. The Earth, okay. Whatever. I would. Yeah. I, I'm I'm cool the with only that. Film. I'm not the only film, but one of them. Yeah. <laughs> that is the only film where I got asked for my autograph by teenage kids. That's pretty cool. And you got a trailer. Come on, man. This is the, I'm telling you, man. <laughs> what is the uh, what's the most valuable lesson that you learned from that production the most valuable lesson i learned is that there is a shit ton of money spent on movies on making films and um, it doesn't matter if it's a piece of crap movie or it's a magnificently realized piece of art. The money that goes into it means that everybody who's there is doing their level professional best. They're bringing their A game and it doesn't matter. So if you're making a movie, you don't waste anybody's time. You don't waste anybody's money. It's, it's not an option for you. And I think that's the biggest lesson as a movie actor that you can you can bring to the set. That's, I think that's something most aspiring filmmakers need to hear because they think like they see like their favorite stars and they think they're just living this life of fun and and that it's like the fun job to have. And sure, it's fun if it's what you love to do, but it is serious work that should be taken seriously. Especially with people's time. They say uh, time is the only thing we never get back. So, I mean, like truly never get back. Mm-hmm. No, I said it wrong. No about no amount of money ever bought a second of time. You cannot achieve other crime. And there you go. Is there anything else you'd like to share about Howard the Duck, the film? Anything at all that you think fans, fans of the film may want to know or they never knew anything obscure? Anything like that? Well, yeah. The In the cafe scene, and by the way, the mantle clock may go off, so don't be surprised, you know, okay. for whom the clock bell tolls, it might toll for me. The, uh, the cafe scene that I was in uh, was actually a Cajun sushi restaurant. And somewhere in my archives in a box, a plastic box somewhere, I still have the menu from the Howard the Duck Cajun sushi place. Um, it's an obscure little trivia fact, but you know, if you look carefully in that scene, you will see somehow an identification that it's Cajun sushi, which is actually kind of pretty ahead of its time if you think about it. Yeah, it is. Fusion, fusion yeah, restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Fusion, exactly. I like that. I that's, like that. That's awesome. Um, after Howard the Duck, you played a reporter in the Deadpool with Clint Eastwood coming back again. Yes. Uh, Liam Neeson and also uh, Jim, or as he went by back then, James Carey. Mm-hmm. Um, the Deadpool was directed by uh, Buddy Van Horn, who recently passed away on May 11th at the age of 92. I was wondering if you had any stories from that production or Buddy that you'd like to share. Well, I didn't interact too much with Buddy because this was, again, um, you know, these location shots are run essentially by first and second ADs. So, you know, Buddy would sit, you know, in his little tent and watch the video playback. And the first and second ADs would, would wrangle us and, and corral us. 
this was on Treasure Island. I was I was in the, the champagne shot. So it was the last scene of the movie. And um, the, uh, you know, working with Clint Eastwood, I mean, it was really an exciting deal because I'm actually, and here's the, here's the trivia question for you guys. If you want to make money at the bar, here's the one. You ask people, who is the last actor to have any dialogue with Dirty Harry Callahan in any Dirty Harry film? And that would be moi. So I, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that that was going to be like something that, you know, I could use to make money in bars. But I was pretty excited about working with him. We're on the pier. It's Treasure Island. It's night. And they're doing helicopter shots. And so the helicopters are coming in low and slow and right over us. And I kept thinking, this was, I think, not very long after Vic Morrow got killed by a helicopter while shooting a film. And so the thing that was freaking me out was like, I wonder if this helicopter is going to land on us and kill us because of the Vic Morrow thing. So that was one thing that that sort of impressed me at the moment. Um, what I didn't realize is as I'm doing this action sequence and I'm, I'm you know, my driver drives me up to the, to the scene and I jump out of the car with my microphone and I jump, you know, I go up to Dirty Harry and I start interviewing him. I'm so excited and I got so much adrenaline going that my vocal register is about half of a uh, octave higher than normal. So. So as I watched the film afterwards, I'm like, why am I talking like I just inhaled helium? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it, was, it, it was a funny thing. But so here's the funny story about the Deadpool, the champagne shot. All of us are gathered after the, after the cut and the wrap, right? And uh, everyone's feeling pretty good about this. I think Clint probably knew, Clint, I, I can call him uh mr eastwood probably knew that uh, actually he liked to be called clint he, he did not want you to call him mr eastwood that's uh, that, my dad's name oh, <laughs> i mean to see good old good old boy like him so yeah i mean and he was actually you know when we sat down to dinner and stuff he sat with us he didn't go to his trailer he was totally a mellow guy uh i asked him how i did in the scene and he's like oh, you're, you're a good kid you're good i was like okay great uh, so after the after that uh, scene was finished, the San Francisco Police Department awarded him with a 357 Magnum gun in a wooden box as a token of their esteem. And he brought a lot of good press to the San Francisco Police Department. And a lot of those guys were on the set as advisors and as well as actors. So there's about 120 of us on, on the pier. And Clint receives this, this pistol and he's like jazzed. He loves it. Uh, and he opens the box and he takes the gun out and he immediately <laughs> covers the crowd. Well, okay, every cop on the set hits the deck. They're, they're fucking flat, right? And all the rest of us schmucks are standing there like as, you know, basically Dirty Harry is pointing his feet. Now, I don't know if it's you have to assume that every gun is loaded and you never point a gun at someone unless you're willing to kill them. Now the cops knew this. So that's why they hit the deck. But you know, Clint, not so much. So that was kind of a indelible moment. So Dirty anyway. Harry can't go to jail, but Clint Eastwood can. I just want to make it very good. <laughs> All right. And that like that would have been changed the whole trajectory of his career, like that one right. After goes postal on set. You feeling lucky, Paul? Yeah. You <laughs> Yeah, yeah if he'd squeezed one off, yeah, I think that would have changed things. Best pop. That 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 was a now that's an amazing story. I love that one. Uh let me ask you this. Um after after the Deadpool in 1988, you would uh not return until film until 2017 with the boat builder. Now we'll get into that as well as voice acting video games in the 90s, which I definitely have a question about. Um, but typically when we interview someone, a majority of their life is largely accounted for on IMDB, which can always be trusted. But you're somewhat of an enigma wrapped inside a Rubik's Cube. So our curiosity is peaked here. Who is Martin beyond acting? Well, beyond acting, uh, of course, like almost all the actors, you have to have day gigs of various different 
types. Um, so I started a frame shop, picture frame shop uh, in San Francisco, because I, not that I knew anything about picture framing, I didn't, uh, but I wanted to uh, <laughs> work with my hands without getting them dirty. And so I sort of started that as an entrepreneurial deal. And I worked on that for many years. And in fact, some of the movie projects that I did get cast on, the money went into the picture frame shop. Um, as well, um, I also ended up doing in that interim between, you know, up until 2017, <clears throat> pardon me. I did a lot of corporate entertainment, which is acting, uh, but I also did uh, communications consulting for, you know, middle management and upper management and C-suite guys. And so I would get hired to help these guys deliver their initiatives, their messages, their threats and promises and all that kind of thing. And I did that for about seven years as well. So, I mean, these are kind of day jobs, but I, I will say this, I'm, I'm blessed because in my entire life, my whole adult life, I never had an office job. I never, you know, came in in the morning at nine, went to the office, clocked out and went home. For my whole it's, life, I was able to do the other kind of work. Hyperventilating man, we, over here. We, we, we tell stories about men like you. <laughs> I mean, I'm not telling you, man, that, that is one, that, day. one day, man, one day. Now, now don't, don't, you're not, we do our research here now. You're not gonna get away with this. We read something about you being somewhat of a musician. Well, I, you know, it's, I, I'm a musician in the sense of I, you know, I can play guitar and I can sing. And I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm relatively uh, capable at those tasks. But, you know, I grew up with a lot of really good musicians. And when I would sit and play with these guys, I'd go, oh, fuck, you are not a musician. You, you cannot. So I didn't I didn't try to compete with them or or try to make a living at it. Uh, but however. I use my musical skills in acting and, and for about eight or nine years, I wrote and performed musical and sketch comedy for corporations. And this took me all over the world. I mean, I was in Cannes and I was in Monte Carlo and Nice and uh, the, the uh, Canary Islands and Hawaii and all these other places. And we do music. We do uh, musical parodies, and which I would write and perform. So I use these skills, but only in the context of making fun of certain genres. I would never like, you know, say, "Oh yes, I'm a serious musician, and I think I should be recorded." You know. Okay, but well, that's something that I would do. One thing you can say is, is that you're a serious voice actor. And I always will have a question about this because I, I, when I first, of all people, people think when you say, hey, listen, you have a great voice. They think that's the key to just voice acting. And it's, it's clearly not. But I will ask you this. I've read online and I don't, I don't agree with the philosophy. Some people say that you have, just like in a film and you're an actor, you need a director. But to me, voice is something that's personal. While someone can give you an interpretation of what they want you to do, it's still ultimately you and you bringing that character to life from your voice. So could you speak to that for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is accurate in terms of it's more of an actor's medium in the sense of it's, it's, it's very intimate because it's really just you and the microphone. Mm -hmm. and you're in the booth. Uh, the directors that I've worked with on these projects, and a lot of them were good, they were very creative guys and women. What they would do is knowing what it was supposed to look and feel and sound like, they would give you direction on how to take that line or how to deliver that word. And as a voice actor, it's, it's fantastic because you know, you're not on stage, so it's not just a one-shot deal if you blow it too bad. You're not in a film circumstance where the camera's on you, and if you blow it, it's another take, and that's another thousand bucks, and don't be an asshole. But you're in this little booth with this microphone in front of you and a script, and hopefully there's a picture of the character that you are portraying to give you some sort of visual. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing 10, 15, 20 takes of each line or each word that you did. And the director might be kibitzing you a little, 
give you a nuance here, a nuance there. So it's a really kind of a, a, an interesting experience and it's definitely, you gotta be on your game. If you're doing three or four voices in a single project and you're doing 20 or 30 takes of each line and you're supposed to be developing different nuances, it's, it's demanding. It is not an easy gig. You know, the Simpsons, these guys, you know, they get paid a lot of money to be in the sound booth, but they are bringing incredible amounts of talent and incredible amounts of experience to putting these characters out there. It's don't think it's an easy gig. It's not right. an easy gig. Uh, I watched um, the the making of Rick and Morty and uh, the, the same guy. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head now, but he does the voice of both Rick and Morty. I don't know if you ever saw the show, but they do some back and forth to each other. They're like, they're practically talking over each other sometimes, get, feeding each other jokes. And it's both him. He's doing both of them. And I thought, oh, okay, he's going in, he's doing Rick. He's going in and doing Morty. He goes in and he's like, rat, he, got, he has a full conversation with himself in two different voices on the microphone. And it's just a, a sounding wow. to watch. Wow. Which, which um, brings me to an anecdote, if you've got a minute, about voice work. Yeah, may, please. may I be yes. indulged? Yes. So, so I did Toshinden too. Now, to Toshinden was this huge game in Japan. It was, it was like as big as any movie in Japan. So when they wanted to bring it to the English-speaking audience, it, you know, it was I think it was Sony. I don't remember what it was. It was a Japanese company. So this, these casting guys are like, "Can you do Japanese accent?" I was like, "Yeah, I can do it. I can do a Japanese accent." I said, why don't you guys just hire a Japanese actor? And they're like, oh, no, you can't understand the Japanese. Uh, they don't just speak English very well. I said, OK. So, so I had to do the older and younger brother, right? The Toshinden had two brothers that are these swordsmen and stuff like that. So I actually had a similar thing to what you just described. I was having dialogue with myself. And yes, you're right. You do one voice, you do all the parts. Then you do the other voice, you do all the parts and you keep the pictures in front of you so that you have a visual reference. It's super important. It's like a mask or a, or a wardrobe. You, you tune into it. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, that's just an anecdote about that particular I, I, gig. Have you played, uh, you're also in Pandemonium 1 and 2, the, the right. games. Have, have you played any of the games that you're in? No, I haven't played that. I think that was... <laughs> I think that was PlayStation. I was more of a Nintendo guy. Mm -hmm. So didn't you no, see, didn't you see Pee Wee Herman? So she, didn't you see Pee Wee Herman? You're not going to stay for the end. I've lived it, Dottie. <laughs> <laughs> so no. it'd be so interesting to like most people when they play a video game, they have to imagine themselves as the character they're playing. He is actually, actually that guy. Yeah, exactly. I didn't think about that. That's awesome. No, I'm playing me. I mean, no, it's me. You guys could be um, a video game. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you have to voice both of us, though. That's the only way we're doing it. <laughs> well, I, I won't go there this minute, but it, it's possible okay. to do that. Okay. <laughs> I don't think he'd get in any trouble for doing my voice. But, no, no, uh, I think he would. My voice is the voice he can do. He already has his melodious voice. Me and him on the same wave. I'll just say, is isn't there, is there a distinction between black face and black voice? No. The, the vocal cords don't see color. Okay, that's right. Okay, so that, that's why they're inside of our body, dirt. Get it together. I'm getting too old for this shit. So I can do You could do Danny Glover from Lead the Weapon. You could. Oh, by the way, by the way, I, I was I did an audition for a Star Wars thing, and they wanted me to do the James Earl Jones part, and so I was doing. You know, I did the audition, and uh, I said, "Why don't you guys just hire James Earl Jones?" And they said, Mr. Jones charges $30,000 an hour or any part thereof to do voice work. And I went, oh, good, great. You remember what Lisa Gorlitsky said about him? He's like, it's all a paycheck. <laughs> Lisa, it doesn't matter what I say. It as is a paycheck. Check, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we have James Earl Jones. Listen, I right? hope he lives a long, 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 long time, but the moment he goes. I'm talking <laughs> to, to my son. son. I type my own shoes once. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Um, sorry, you know, we, we, we'll riff all day, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ten years after working on uh, Pandemonium 2, you played the character Roger in The Boat Builder. Uh, you were in good company on that set as the so, as far as sabbaticals go. Um, this was writer-director Arnold Grossman's second project following The Love Boat, which was done nearly 40 years prior. Can you tell us about what, what that project was like? What brought you back to film? Well, um, first of all, that project was really fun and really warm and just a great environment. Uh, Arnold Grossman is a sweet man and uh, super generous and super giving. Um, and, you know, like, like all the old Jewish guys that I grew up with, he was like one of the clan. And it just felt normal and natural and comfortable to be with him. Now, this was a location shot, um, a, a location set. And uh, I was supposed to play, originally, <laughs> I had a smaller role. And I was supposed to be opposite, um, what's your name? Uh, Malcolm in the Middle's mom. Uh, Patrish, why do I want us to know? That's home improvement. Oh, anyway, well, you know who I'm talking about. Yes, yes. So I was supposed to play opposite her. Now she is in the movie. She plays uh, Christopher Lloyd's character's daughter, but okay. she became disheartened with the film, and I, I I can't speak to that. I don't know anything about it. But she dropped out of the film. So the uh, the producers call me and they're like, "Bad news. Uh, your scene mate is out of the film." And so you're not going to get those scenes. And I went, oh, bummer. You know, good news. You're going to get all her lines. I was like, oh, fantastic. That's great. So I show up on the set and um, I'm I'm uh, working with Christopher. Call me Chris Lloyd. Okay. So now, come on. This is Doc in Back to the Future. This mm -hmm. is uh, you know Uncle Fester. This is Clue. the guy. Yeah. Uh, and the guy who was on the set of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, okay, and and Jim in Taxi, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a little, you know, I'm a little intimidated. Um, and it's not comedy. We're not doing any comedy. So, like, I can't use those chops at all. Mm -hmm. So he and I had a little conversation prior to the cameras rolling. And I said, look, this is your movie. I'm in this, you know, I'm in this two scenes for this. I'm like, please do whatever you want to do. I will follow you and I will react. I'll just do what, whatever, however you lead it, I'll just be there. And if we improvise, we improvise. If we do script, we do script. It's whatever you want to do. I'm totally down with that. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Good. And so this kind of gave us both permission to, I mean, we had it blocked out. Don't, don't get me wrong. It was blocked. It was, we shot it as written. Um, but working with a guy like Christopher Lloyd, you have to give him some leeway because he's he's an engine unto himself. He'll do lots of fun stuff. And if you go with, you know, if you resist it, it's like any improv. If you say no, that's the end of the improv. Mm -hmm. If you say yes and, then you're moving forward with the scene. So it was really fun to work with him. And and so we'd cut a scene and then Arnold Grossman would come down out of his, you know, his tent. Great. That's great. That's fantastic. Uh, and, and then he, he, he put his arm over my shoulder. My, my father had already passed away at this point. He said, I think your dad would have been proud of you today. And I was like, man, that is such a mensch thing to say that, you know, it was great. So that was fun. That was, it was really a fun set. Um, to work on. I enjoyed it. Um, let me ask you this. By any chance, did you bump into a young, very young Jim Carrey before you the world knew he, who he would be? I didn't. Um, okay. I, I ran into a very young Robin Williams. Um, oh, Robin. Bob, can you tell this is Robin Williams right here from the film Death the Smoochie? This is uh, him, him and his little get up from Death the Smoochie. This is Robin Williams right here. We keep yes. There we go. I can I can see that although you guys of course have put it on gallery view so yes. speaker view so it's very tiny, yes. uh, but but Robin so Robin worked with my dad at College of Marin on stage my dad was doing uh, uh, 
Fiddler on the Roof. And Robin was in that. So my dad's like, Robin, come down to the restaurant. I'll give you a job. So Robin worked in my dad's restaurant. And I worked in my dad's restaurant. So Robin and I worked in the kitchen at the restaurant. And this was, you know, he was still a serious drama student. This is before he went to Juilliard. And um, so I knew him then. Uh, long story short, uh, he went on to greatness. Uh, I took bit parts in, in movies. But here's, here's one thing that I will say. Before Robin Williams was Mrs. Doubtfire, I was Mrs. Doubtfire. And the reason for that is I auditioned for it. He, he had another stand-up comic cast in the role, but he wanted to throw me something. So I became the makeup model. You know, they had a lot of appliances for him. So before he became Mrs. Doubtfire, they glued Mrs. Doubtfire to me, put me in the wig and took pictures of and so that's, I was actually Mrs. Doubtfire first. Woo! But see, I can that's, see him playing that role because I was just thinking about it from all the voices that Robert Williams made. And of course, you being a voice actor yourself. I mean, that, I can see why they would even want you to do something like that. That's amazing. I did not know that. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So I guess you guys have similar face structures. Yeah, I think so. Or we did. His, he doesn't have much of one anymore. But yeah. 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 Well, dark. Yeah, like no, but no, okay. Robin Robin would appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Work with the yeah, man. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no Jim Carrey. Yes, Robin Williams. Okay. I mean, hey, tomato tomato. All right. It looks like about two years ago you began posting to YouTube uh, for your short political commentary segments called What the Hell Just Happened? And we'll be sure to include links to that in the description too. So anybody that's interested can check it out. Um, were you always interested in politics and what it, what inspired you to start doing the show? I was always interested in politics. I grew up in a political family. My, my parents were both very political and you know, part of the anti-war movement and all of that. I grew up protesting in the streets. Um, I've always paid attention. You know, I applauded during the Nixon resignation speech. Um, you know, that's always been an interest of mine. Uh, however, doing the what the hell just happened uh, vlog really came about because each day of the Trump administration was some new insanity. And uh, it was very hard to deal with. I was starting to get Trump fatigue. And I'd, so I'd go like to the gym every morning and work out. And I'd, all the people in the gym that I ran into, I'd go, you know what the hell just happened yesterday? And they'd go, no, tell us. So I'd go into this diatribe about what fucked up thing had happened, you know, in, in politics on any particular day. And I went, you know what, I'm going to stop bothering the people at the gym. And uh, I'm just going to use some of my skills to put together these short videos, which hopefully most of the time at least are a little bit funny. Um, and I could use some voice skills, I can use uh, on camera skills whatever. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of how it came about. It was just my way of trying to make sense of what seemed to be a horrible time in American politics and just to be able to shout about it. And I didn't really care if anybody watched. I just, you know, it you know, does, I, uh, I could totally get that. Like needing, so the information was coming so fast. There's so, or not even information, but things would happen so fast. It wouldn't even have time to process what right. happened yesterday or sometimes this morning before this afternoon. It was like, well, what the hell did he do now? It's, it's, it's all, people would say it, it was so much information coming out that no matter what happened that morning, by the time you got home, it was already a new subject and it was, so, yeah, you couldn't keep to, up with it. To, to make a project out of it where yeah. you're like, where you're, I guess, kind of putting the ducks in a row in a way where you could look at, the, okay, this is what's happening. That, that has to be cathartic. All right, let, let me ask you this, because clearly we know, but it's kind of satire if we say it, so feel free to drill these points home. Could yeah. you talk about what goes into creating your own show and managing your own content? Yeah, um, actually, um, so what I wanted to achieve, what to, okay, let me make sure that I'm saying, saying this the way I feel it. Um, at first, I didn't give a shit, and I just wanted to say whatever I wanted to say. And I thought I could be funny doing it. And then as time went by, I sort of started to get a following, a little bit of a following. And I thought, okay, so this should be at least relevant in a, in a more, you know, gestalt sense, in a bigger picture sense. I should at least make this be about something about us as Americans today. And so I started to kind of get 
a little bit better, I think, at the writing. Um, and it got shorter and, and it became uh, more to the point. It was less broad in terms of what I was approaching. And that's kind of been the evolution of what I've been doing is it's kind of gotten a little bit more brief and a little bit more pointed and a little bit more, I try to always be positive because I, mm -hmm. I don't like this idea that we're, you know, the Bill Maher concept of we're all in a shithouse going down. And I don't think that. Um, I think that America has a lot of promise, but it's up to us to fulfill that promise. So I, I, I would try to do like a positive story at the end of each one in the early days. Um, and that's so, and then a part of doing it at home and, you know, discovering green screens and discovering better mics, which I'm not using today because Zoom calls. Zoom. Is anyway, um, so getting a little bit more technically proficient, not a lot, getting a little better camera, getting a little better lighting. And so eventually I thought, well, try to make it look good, try to make it sound good, try to make the content resonant and still be happy and still try to make the occasional joke that people will appreciate. And I, you know, it feels good. So a funny thing happened on, on, on Facebook. I don't know if you guys experienced this either. All of a sudden I started to get followers and then the followers would follow the followers and then more followers. Now, and I'm not saying at any level, even close to what real, you know, popular guys get, but it was, I got more followers than I had friends on Facebook. And I was like, wow, this is blowing my mind. What are these people? Why do these people give a shit about my ranting and my pontificating? But it sort of changed the way I approached it. Cause I'm like, oh, now I got a guy from Canada and there's somebody in South Carolina and there's somebody here and somebody there. And I can't be, you know, Bay area specific. I can't be personally specific. It's gotta be broader. So that's kind of what's come about. Uh, as I've worked this thing through, and it's still fun. I'm still. I'll, I'll do one. I'll leave the setup. No, I'll change. I'll change the setup. I'll do one later today, because um, I like doing. Uh, speaking of lighting yourself and doing, it, and we always see as we it's a camera trick, but we always know it because he wears glasses when I wear shades. Like we see you working that ring light in the background, man. There, there you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> do, you, do you do the editing as well? Uh, yeah, although I try to keep it as minimal as possible. If I can do a single take and run it straight through i'll do that um i try to make it more about the content than the look although you guys i don't know if it's you durden or or torian who this who is rocks. Edwards, this is edward scissorhands himself his hand okay. he, he cuts he's the as uh any uh no uh, the most uh, the thing that an editor appreciates the most is a director who's also edited <laughs> Right on. Uh, keep it keep it nice and as tight as possible. Mm -hmm. Run nice it to work as much. Uh, yeah, nice and neat. Nice and neat. <laughs> yeah. yeah you, um, got, you guys rock that stuff. You're really good at it. Thank you very much. I, I've I've been at it for a hot minute. I've uh, turned down a lot of social. Uh, and uh, I uh, that was about one caveat to him when we talked about doing a show. I like I'll I'll show up every day you need me. We can use my place, my studio, my equipment. I'm not editing. <laughs> and I, and I was just, I was like, I'm not, I'll do anything else. I'll get your food, I'll iron your clothes. I, I, I am not editing. And stupid me was like, oh, yeah. no problem. So yeah. it'd be like, we take two hours to shoot the episode. We take four hours to edit, six hours in and out. We got an episode in the can. Uh -huh. It takes like 30 to 40 hours to edit an episode. And I should have known that. It's not my first rodeo. It's not. But you go into every one with this sense of naivety. Uh, it's the only way to, to jump in is to be a, a little bit naive about what you're getting into. Because if we knew how big the undertaking was, you'd have never done jump. it. Yeah. By the way, um, your Joker, your Joker segment, I thought was really good. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. We 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 thought we were going to go to war over that, but, but then we still wound up back at the same place. So we really like try to take an obscure look at it. So thank you so much for that, because that's one of our favorite episodes. I, I cool. greatly appreciate that. Thank you. And you keep trying to shift the shift the spotlight. So I'm going to turn it back this way and say, <laughs> he's been doing it since he started. He, he's flipped it on us. It's I, good. I appreciate political commentary. I watch a lot of it. That's my to my wife's um, chagrin, frustration. I watch. <laughs> I watch like like Sam Cedar. I love Sam Cedar. I watch. Um, yeah. Oh shit! Not Rogan it out. You Rogan your podcast? Uh, Joe Rogan. You know, uh, Joe, Joe Rogan. Was, uh, he's yeah. apolitical. Um, but I, I love your content. I think yeah. I mean, you you like you said you do. You, you got 
what's important in and out it's it's tight it's well lit and he tries to remain positive everybody on the internet is just flunking to just clickbait 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 nope that needs to be some good fucking content and And that's an undertaking to remain positive in the world of politics that's why we when we created this show we specifically like it was it was kind of we had like the adverse reaction to what to the reason why you started your show we started this uh, to escape all that like we we are being bombarded by this information everywhere we look. We need, like, we go to movies to escape. So let's just do a show. Let's just put something out there on the internet where people can come with us and escape for two right. hours. And until we do Enemy of the State, we'll, we don't have to worry about politics. But we're going <laughs> to get political. We're going to break the rule, and the show is going to get political for one quick question. And then I promise we'll be right back to movies. But, um, what would you say are the three most important issues that are happening right now that people should be paying attention to? Uh, I think the three most important issues in our time today is the actual decline of democracy. Sorry, see, there it was. the bell see? tolls. Time's up. <laughs> see, that's it. Uh, decline of democracy. And people, you know, they think that this is a resilient state and you know, that we were born into democracy and we'll always be in democracy because that's where we are in America. It's not true and it could decline and we could lose it. So that's number one. Number two is the prevalence of willful ignorance. And by that, I mean, like, and I'm, I, look, I don't want to piss off all of you QAnon followers. I love you guys. You're, 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 you're awesome. You're hilarious. But, but it's ignorant. And it's, you know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, a third of a certain group of people think the earth is flat. Uh, you know, there's a lot of willful ignorance. People are not taking vaccines for the COVID-19 virus. Why? Uh, okay. Uh, so that's number yeah. two, the prevalence of willful ignorance. Number three is most important is a feeling of powerlessness to do something about all we have the power we are the power mm-hmm. this country the people are the sovereign state not anybody else so those that to me is like overwhelmingly the three most important things going on right now politically now let's leave that realm and talk about movies damn it well i, 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 I just have a follow-up they, oh no you promised they, him that we would go right back well, you, you have to keep your promise they, they know i don't i don't keep promises yeah, okay <laughs> all right You're well, you could be a politician <laughs> So the willful ignorance thing is so true. Like, I always find it funny. Like, I even thought when I asked you, I've always been political. It's funny when people are like, oh, I don't like to think about politics. I don't give a shit what you like to think about. The politics are happening. So, like, you not thinking about it doesn't make it not happen. So it's affecting your, you know, unless it affects me, everything political affects you. So, and the QAnon shit, I have a personal spite towards them because I'm an old school conspiracy theorist, you know, Bigfoot, aliens, and now the the, the conspiracy theorist title has been just uh, usurped, taken from us. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very frustrating, but I, um, I like how he wrapped it up though, because again, you, we heard the statement. This comes, this is how we said way back to the movies. Power to the people. <laughs> power to the people. Like he said, the people have the power. There it is. Boom. Yeah, so right. I said, wait. Boom. Yeah. Yes. Oh, is it me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, segue. Oh, no, it does say segue. You've been, you're right. It does say segue. Yeah, all right. So we're okay. going to go ahead just like Ford and Dodge. We're going to switch gears right back into our wheelhouse and ask if you were going to be locked in a room for one year mm-hmm. and you were allowed to watch, bring one film, not that you were in, just any film in the world, what movie would you watch every day if you had to? Okay. Wow. Well, come on. I mean, it has to be. Saturday Night Fever, right? I mean, come on, what oh, else? Man. Uh, uh, hey, okay, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, okay, this is an inherently uh, unfair question. And oh, true. True. The, true. Fa- the fact that you could ask it is, is an affront to any real film buffs. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, what, you, what a better way to ask, what you're actually asking me is like, what films do I go to? Which ones do I watch over and over again? And why do I do that? Even if it's one film, which one For film? Sure. We're trying right. to avoid people saying, oh, well, my favorite film is Casablanca. <laughs> like, no, 
I want to hear about uh, Can't Hardly Wait. I want to hear about, you know, scary movie, the movies that are comfort, the comfort movies for us. Well, okay, so so the the question is, you know, we'd say what what genre would you like to watch every day for a year, or what director, what you know, <laughs> what auteur would you like to watch his or her films every day? And so, so let me just bring it down to to two films. And I know you know Casablanca. No, I'm not going to do Casablanca. <laughs> but what I will do is I will say that The Maltese Falcon is one of my go-to films and I've, i'll watch it over and over i've watched it dozens of times and the reason i love it so much is it took a genre and it elevated it to a perfection uh it, it's noir done right every aspect of that is is completely watchable and memorable so yes it's an old movie multi-style okay you have a comment because I have a second. No, no, I don't have a, I don't, I was just going to say I've not seen it, but I've went to. Okay, well, you should see it because it's, it's a, an astounding movie. Um, and, and basically John Houston, who directed it, took the book um, and lifted it, all the dialogue out of the book and added camera directions and, you know, entrances and exits. That's it. So it's, it's, nice. it's great. The other movie that I would watch over and over again, and that I always watch over and over again, are, is Godfather One and Two. Uh, and the reason is it, it took a genre that was established and it elevated that to operatic quality. It became something much more than Mario Puzo ever thought of uh, and Francis Coppola. By the way, uh, Coppola lives in the city and I have some personal Coppola stories, but I won't get to that, but he shot the Godfather one and two as a single thing. And then Paramount was like, we're not gonna release a four hour movie, you're insane. And then of course they released both. Uh, yes. you know, subsequently. That's awesome. Yeah, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, so yeah, the, see the Maltese Falcon mm -hmm. and you know, maybe, you know, before you, you know, anyway. Yes. And, and, and then Godfather, because it elevated a, an old genre to something beyond what it was. So that's my answer to your, and I love I like film. That. I love film. Awesome. Yeah. I can tell, like, I mean, no, that, those are two, I, 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 I'm, I've heard of the Maltese Falcon. Everyone says I should watch it. I've not watched it. So I guess I'm going to take your advice. You should. Watch it and get some, and then I'm going to watch it. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> yes. You should do both. Uh, yes. Uh, for the aspiring actors out there, what advice would you give them? I would say if you want to have a career as an actor, um, get a lot of experience, learn the craft, do a lot of work, work for free, do stage work. But the most important thing to remember, all you young kids out there, get off my lawn. Here come the cops now. They're going to take me away. Oh my God. Can you hear that? The most yeah. important thing. All that positivity you're putting on their show, yeah. they're coming to get your ass. And coming to get my ass is right. <laughs> Most important thing, it's called show business. It's not called show art, it's show business. So when someone hires you to do a gig of any kind, and I don't care how small it is or how big it is, show up prepared, know what you're gonna do, be good at it, don't fuck it up, don't waste anybody's time because it's show business. And that's one piece of advice I give any actor. That's perfect. It's strong. That's yeah. my life. It's very strong. For the general population out there, yeah. what is your best piece of advice? Uh, it doesn't have to be political. It doesn't have to be about film. Just people in society in general. One piece of advice. I would say practice kindness and compassion and assume the best in people, but don't tolerate assholes ever. That's a, uh, yeah. Yes. And definitely don't vote for them. Hey. Definitely don't vote for them. Oh my God. But okay, we're not I getting like political. I'm just saying no, just be, we're just be, be kind tips. and compassionate. That's that's yes. the main that's the main thing. Um, well if you if you if you do want to get political, be sure to check out um what the hell just happened. Well again, <laughs> the link will be in the description. And uh before we go, do you have any parting words that you'd like to share just in general? Sure. I, I would say this. Um like uh the famous New York Yankee catcher, Yogi Berra. This game that we play is 
40% half mental. So be prepared for it and get in the game. Hey, Martin, thank you so much for taking time. This has been, I, I truly, we talk to a lot of people and it never gets boring, but when you can usually tell when someone has a true passion for the art. And I and I, and I I would love if we ever get a chance, we're going to be checking out your show. If you ever need an, an atheist and a guy that is half and half, just let me know. We'll come on the show. Thanks, guys. I really appreciated meeting you and I, I love to be interviewed. It's a real honor and yes. great success with your show. I hope you get lots of followers and influencers yes. and make money and all that thing that happens yes. for people. Hey, me, hey, me and you're going to do a voice get one, one day together. Me and you're going to voice it up, man. I'm down with that, man. Whenever it's there, I'm there. All right, brother. Thank you so All much. Right, Be you. safe and peace and love to your family. Thank you. Thanks. You, you too. Have a good rest of your weekend. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>